The scripture from today's sermon is Mark 12, verses 13 through 27. The word of God speaks to us. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Brittany. Hey, guys, good morning. You doing okay? Rowdy at the eleven. Just rumbling. I love it. Hey, listen, my name is Chad Kinser, and I serve as one of our pastors. And uh, I get to open the Word of God today. It's a privilege and an honor. Um, the passage we're going to be looking at today is uh, the, the passage that was just read uh, from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. And uh, we've got a lot of work to do in this passage today. Uh, as we mentioned last week, we're in the section of Mark where the volume is turned up, tempers are starting to flare, uh, things are getting heated around the person of Jesus. And so uh, there's a lot we want to unpack today, a lot we want to sort of then sit with to try to figure out what it means for us and what implications are. So I want to jump right to it. So if you would pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us by his word. Sound good? Let's do it. Father, I ask that today... Um, that in the name of your son, Jesus, not, not because I'm asking it, not because we deserve it, but because of your son, Jesus, who is given on our behalf, I'm asking in his name that you would fill this moment with your power and your presence. There's a lot of places we come into this room from, and a lot of us haven't known an encounter with your power in a long time, and your presence feels like a distant afterthought. But you always teach us by your word. You always show up to us by your word. Your word is living and active, and I'm asking now that you would renew us again with your power and your presence through your word open to us. 
I'm asking that you would help me not to get in the way. I'm asking that you would put me to the side and your word would breathe. Your word would make sense today. And so form us as the people of your son, Jesus. And we offer this prayer in his name alone. We all said, amen, amen. Hey, as I sat with this passage of scripture this week, I had a question that kept coming to my mind as I was reading this passage of scripture. And the question is this, I'll open with it and we'll explore from there. What happens when what you really want is just to be right? What happens when what you want is just to be right? It could be an argument, it could be an issue, it could be some sort of conflict you're experiencing and maybe you don't even believe what you're arguing for anymore. You just wanna be right. What happens when you wanna be right, here's the second part of the question, and you don't really care on the other side whether or not you have God? What happens in that moment? As I started thinking about that question for myself and as a reflection of this passage, I started thinking about the fact that that actually is a question that speaks to and explains so much of our current cultural moment, doesn't it? We live in a current moment where at the same time, everybody is right and everybody is wrong, right? Everybody is right because we live in a moment where you can just choose your own adventure and the only wrong thing to do is oppose someone else's viewpoint, right? Everybody is right and simultaneously everybody is wrong because if you don't support my viewpoint or affirm what I believe or what I see or my view of the world, then you're a hateful person and you're wrong and you're canceled. Everybody is right and everybody is wrong. This is why we're so polarized. And there can't be any thought of God in that because if you think about God in the midst of a culture where everyone's right and everyone's wrong, then there has to be a judge and we don't want anyone to judge us. The irony of that is that we don't want anyone to judge us but we do want to be a judge of all kinds of people, right? Just so long as we're the judge, that's where a judge has its place, me, right? And I read something this week about the uniqueness of the moment we live in, and it started talking about debates, right? Um, things where we argue together about religion and politics and morality. And, it's, and the, argue talked, the article talked about how that's not unique to our time. I and mean, people have been arguing about these things, and and making, making their point about these issues from the beginning. That, that, that's nothing new. We, we know that. But it talked about the uniqueness of our moment is that we're having these conversations, we're having these debates, we're seeking to be right on these issues at a time when there's no consensus, there's no common framework from which we're having these kinds of conversations. So in a moment where social institutions have been torn down and distrusted and deconstructed for all kinds of actually good reasons on one hand, on the other hand, we don't have a place from which we're agreeing on something and coming to a conversation. So you might believe in God and you might not. And that's going to change the conversation we're going to have drastically. Because I'm going to argue from a place that might be one thing and you're going to argue from a different place potentially. And we're not going to talk with each other. We'll talk past one another. Which is what most of us experience at holiday affairs, right? You might be on the left politically. You might be on the right. And whichever side of the aisle you're on makes you public enemy number one because I'm all of a sudden now going to start assuming motives and assuming your position on things and you're out to get me, right? This is what we do. There's no common framework. There's no consensus. And so we're just talking past. You might agree with me on moral issues, but you probably don't because we live in a moment of moral subjectivity. What's right for you might be wrong for me. What's wrong for me might be right for you. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. Can we just figure out how to coexist? And we find how that goes, right? Everybody is right and everybody is wrong at the same 
time. That's why this section of the book of Mark is really, really important for us. As we talked about last week, what Mark is doing in this section of the book is it's no longer the question, who is Jesus? He's been stacking the evidence for that question through the first 10, 11 chapters. The question is now shifted. It's not who is Jesus, what are you going to do with him? What am I going to do with him? What are we going to, how are we going to respond to this God-man? And the question isn't if, but when something about Jesus confronts something about you. Not if, not if that happens, if something that Jesus says confronts me. It's when something that Jesus says confronts you, what happens? What happens when everybody wants to be right and yet you're confronted and you're not confronted by just anyone but Jesus, the one who is the God-man? What happens? Will you slow down? Will you slow down with the, con- the confrontation long enough to have a conversation to kind of figure out what's, what's happening here? Will you lean in and hear him out? Or, or will you come to the same conclusion that the religious leaders had in his day? If you disagree with me, the problem is not with me. The problem is with you. If you disagree with me, then you must be silenced. This was their conclusion. And so in our passage today, we're going to get two more moments of confrontation, two more interrogations by leaders of his day. And these interrogations are going to happen around the most popular topics of the holiday dinner table, politics and religion, right? Two different conversations brought to Jesus by two very different groups of people, but the heart of the groups and the heart of where they want to take the conversation is the same. The idea is this. We make him conform to us. If he doesn't, then we get rid of him. That's the heart of these conversations. We make him conform to us, and if he doesn't, we get rid of him. So we'll take these conversations one at a time, and then how we'll work this thing is that at the end of it, we'll draw it together and figure out what it means for us. So let's pick up the first conversation. The first encounter is around the issue of politics. Pick up in 13 with me. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, pause here. We'll take this apart piece by piece. It says, they sent to him. Who is they? They is the people last week that we addressed in the conversation around the authority of Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? He was confronted last week by the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the big three influential groups of his day. They couldn't deal with him in their confrontation, so now they've put on a hit on Jesus and they've recruited some of their friends to say, we couldn't do it, how about you? They recruit the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now they're working together and these are two very, very different groups of people. This is the right and the left politically. The Pharisees, you know who these people are. They're pretty common in Scripture. This is the religious elite. So they are committed to God, the things of God, the Old Testament, at least in their minds, right? And they are politically opposed to Roman occupation. The Caesar claims to be God. He claims to be Lord. He's not our Lord. That is Yahweh. They're politically and theologically opposed to Rome. And so... They want nothing to do with Rome and they want to be their own nation state. Yet the Herodians are a Jewish group of people who actually have become quite comfortable with Roman occupation. They actually go, no, it actually benefits us. It actually helps us. And so they've broken off from the religious Judaism of their day to actually kind of become in cahoots with Rome. These are two groups of people who would typically be at odds, but now they go, we have a common enemy. It's Jesus. He's actually threatening the power of the religious system and the political system, maybe we can work together, find a common, a common end, and attack him. It says they want to trap him in his talk. So the word there in the original language, it says that these two groups have come to him working together 
to trap him. The, the word is literally hunt. They come to hunt him. They're trying to take him as their prey, right? And so whatever's about to happen, whatever we're about to read, this is not a conversation. This is not a moment where we want to learn, Jesus, what your political views are. This is an attack. This is, this is an affront. They're not interested in anything else than just simply being right. So pick up with me in 14. It says, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Pause there. Uh, they come to him and it sounds like, oh, they're being nice. Like my daughter's being nice. And she says, daddy, I love you so much. You are awesome and amazing. Will you buy me this thing, right? You don't love me. I'm not awesome and amazing. You just want the thing, right? They come to Jesus with all kinds of false flattery just to sort of have an on-ramp into the conversation to pull them into the web, right? So here's their question then. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And so here's the dilemma in their question. These two groups of people, one is politically opposed to Rome, one is politically in favor of Rome. They're thinking if we work together and we ask him this question, then we can trap him because he might answer in favor of one group and opposed to the other, but that's fine because it gave the one group all they needed to now destroy him and rally their constituencies against him or the other way around. So in their minds, this is the perfect question to trap Jesus. Because if he answers in favor of paying taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees have all they need to call him a fraud and a false prophet. You've been talking about the kingdom of God. You've been talking about God bringing his power and presence to his people to restore them. And now you're saying we should pay taxes to Rome, who is oppressing us through their occupation, their, 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 uh, their, their presence over us? Then you're a fraud and you're false and we'll rally the people against you and call you a false prophet and have you stoned. On the other hand... If he answers opposed to taxes and says, don't pay the taxes at all, this is about the kingdom of God, then he's a problem for Rome and the Herodians have the information they need to then indict him as an insurrectionist. He's already cleansed the temple. He's already rallied a group of people. The next thing he's about to do is have an armed assault on Rome. We'll just have him taken out as an insurrectionist. They're just looking to rally their constituencies on this question. Just answer one way or another so we can have what we want. Now, this is their way of launching a slime campaign, but Jesus answers back in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, pause there for a second, man. This is a moment, this is kind of free and extra, but it just strikes me every time I read this. This is a moment where you have to realize, however you're coming to God, whether you're totally for him and you want to be near him, or whether you're like questioning his claims today and not sure what you think about it, you got to know that when you come to God, he sees through your facades. He sees through all the fake stuff you put up and the fake motives to try to put yourself in a better light. It says right here in this moment, he saw through their hypocrisy. No, what does it say? It says, he said to them, why do you guys put me to the test? You can imagine his tone. Like, why are you guys doing this, man? Have we ever had these conversations? Why do you put me to the test? And he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so a lot of scholars come around this and they go, we can probably assume what kind of tax they're talking about because he asked for a denarius. It was common in that day for an annual tax to be given. It's called a head tax or a poll tax. And it was a tax given from Caesar to the people. And the idea was that they would give back to him a gift for the privilege of being a Roman citizen. They would give back to him a gift for simply being a citizen under his rule, right? And a denarius was in their day a day's worth a day's wage. So it was a small tax. It was just simply a day's worth of work. 
But what's happening on this coin, the reason Jesus asks for it, is that on one side of the coin it says Caesar Tiberius, and it references Augustus, who would claim to be a god. And so he's saying Caesar Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, a son of the son of God, Augustus. So he's claiming to be a son of God of sorts. On the back it says Pontus Maxim, which means high priest. And so Caesar's asking for this tax, and on his own coin it calls himself a son of God and a high priest. And Jesus looks at it, and he looks back at them, and he says, whose inscription or whose likeness is on this coin? And they say Caesar's. Now here's some of the irony around this coin that he asks for. You have one who's claiming to be a son of God and a high priest, and you have one who has no coins to his name. He has to ask for the denarius who actually is the son of God and is the one who's going to make a high priestly offering for his people, and they're confronting this issue. It's a loaded moment. But notice how Jesus answers this. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pause there. They asked Jesus, remember the question, should we pay taxes? The, the idea of that, should we give this gift? Should we give this gift to Caesar, this tax he's asking for, which is a gift of the privilege of being under his rule? Should we give this to him? Jesus answers by intensifying the language. He's not talking in terms of gift. He's now saying render, which is give back what is owed. You're making this issue about the coin. It's a coin. His likeness is on it. Give the man his coins, right? He intensifies it, say give back what's actually Caesar's. But at the same time, if his likeness is on the coin, then give to God also what is God's and his likeness is on you. Remember, you are made in the image of God. Don't you know your scriptures? You are made in the image and likeness of God to display and to image what he's like into the world. You're making this issue, he's talking to them, you're making this issue out to be about taxes. And he's looking right at the Pharisees in this moment. You're robbing Caesar by not giving this man a coin with his likeness on it, but you're also robbing God by not giving back to him what has his likeness on it, and that's your life. They're trying to confront Jesus and trap him about the issue of taxes, and he actually traps both groups in his response. And he confronts them to say, you're robbing both. And so it says they marveled. Their jaws dropped. We wanted to pin him down, and all of a sudden, he put his finger in our chest. And there's something here for us before I move on to the next. Clearly, in this moment, God isn't impressed. Can we please hear this? God isn't impressed when you take up causes for him or claim political positions in his name, but your heart and your affections are far from him. They were claiming to say, we're for God and we're for his people, and we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. And Jesus is like, don't play like you're super religious because you're With your mouth you confess him, but your heart is far from him, and you want nothing to do with giving your life to him. We love to make stands for God and claim to be people of God and country, all the while our desire for God in our prayer life is cold. And what little prayer there is, it's prayer more concerned with God bless me and God give me peace than it is I want to surrender to you and I want to worship you and I want to have intimacy with you. It's more prayers for prosperity and for health than it is prayers for simple and pure devotion. Don't claim to have positions for God when your heart is far from him. This is the first conversation questioned around politics. The second conversation comes in verse 18. It says, and the Sadducees came to him. Now, this is a different group of people, right? We had the Herodians and the Pharisees on one hand. Now we have a different group of people, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, we've got to know something about them. 
they're a wealthy group of people, aristocratic group, a community of Jewish people that were both progressive and conservative at the same time. They might be like first century libertarians in this moment. Because on the one hand, they're progressive. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a resurrection. Uh, they, they, they don't believe in anything supernatural. And they didn't even accept the whole Old Testament as God's scriptures. They only accepted the first five books, the Torah, the books of Moses. That's the real scripture in their minds. So on the one hand, they're progressive. On the other hand, they're really conservative because they were super strict on issues of justice and morality. And so they come to him with this question about the resurrection because they don't believe that that's the case. So if we can just make Jesus look stupid, then we can trap him and we can get rid of him. All right, verse 19, here's the scenario. So teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. But he had seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he had died, left no offspring. So the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. All of them died, and last of all, the woman. And so in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So they offer this scenario to Jesus as if he's going to hear this and go, you know what, guys? I've never thought of this. You're right. That's a ridiculous scenario, and the resurrection isn't true. Thank you for helping me out today, right? This is what they think they're pitching to Jesus. Now, Jesus is actually way more mature than me, which is not something we were actually debating today. But he's way more mature because I would have said, hey, guys, actually, this is not about the resurrection. Let's talk about the black widow in your scenario. Why are all these dudes dying as soon as they marry her? I think if the problem is with your scenario, um, that's how I might have responded. But Jesus, again, way more mature than me. And so he responds. Now, his response here is fascinating. And it's not one you'd want to hear from Jesus if this was your approach. He goes, is this not the reason that you're wrong? First of all, he just starts out by going, you guys have lost your minds. Like, that's just how he starts. Is this not the reason that you're wrong? That you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, that is a punch in the face of this group that sees themselves as strictly adhering to the true scriptures of God, right? The first five books in their minds. And, you know, they've already gotten rid of anything supernatural, but it's like the reason that you're wrong clearly is you have no idea about the scriptures that you claim to believe and you have no idea about the power of God. Why are you coming to me as though you're informing me about the resurrection. So notice his response in 25. For when they rise from the dead, they, neither, they, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So their question was about whose wife will she be? And he's like, well, in heaven there's not marriage because it's not like it is down here. Marriage down here points to a bigger picture of union with God that will be satisfied fully in his presence there. The idea of like angels simply means that we're in, under, un, his, in his presence uninterrupted, not that we're actually like angels. So there's, there's that piece. But then 26, he goes on. And as for the dead being raised, your question, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? He's now indicting them on the scripture that they accept. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? I love the way he references that there. Talking about the burning bush and God speaking to Moses there. Have you not read the passage about the bush, bush when God spoke to him saying, notice this, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. That's a subtle response to us, but it would have been blatant to them. Notice what he says. They're asking about the resurrection. And he says, well, what about the scriptures that you claim to know? Don't you know that passage about the bush 
where God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that significant? Again, subtle to us, they would have been blatant. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for lots of years. Right? They're long dead. And yet God shows up to say, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, when they were around, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was their God then. I am their God now. In fact, they're with me in my presence, and I will always be their God. He's defending a view of the resurrection from the scriptures that they know, saying, this is the God of the living. In fact, that's his next line. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Remember, this is even Jesus who in John chapter 11, before the tomb of Lazarus with Mary and Martha, tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. It's in me. I'm the God of the living. So where the first group was trying to trap him in some sort of political misspeak, the second group is actually coming to try to trap him by reducing God. Catch what they were doing. They're trying to reduce God to a philosophical framework, some sort of ideology. But Jesus responds by saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. He's an intensely personal presence. He's the God of the living. He himself is the living God. So I want to go back to the question we asked in the beginning. What happens when you just want to be right? What happens when you just want to be right? You just want to win the argument but you don't really care whether or not you have God on the other side. Well, the answer to that question is here in this passage. Not only are you wrong, but you miss God too. Not only are you wrong, you miss God too, which is a double sting because often the reason that we insist on being right in an argument is we're compensating, aren't we, for our insecurity because we don't feel worthy before the face of God, but at least we can claim that we're right. The sting of this is that it's actually a double miss. When you want to be right and you don't care about God, you actually miss both. And so where these both conversations, where these two conversations come together for us today is this. When Jesus says, give to God what is rightly and only his, give to God what has his image on it, that's your life. When Jesus says that, listen, that's not just advice that's not just kind of like, hey, here's an idea. When Jesus says, give to God what is rightly God's, there's urgency to that command. Why? Because he's the God of the living. He's not just an idea or a concept. He's the living God. So life isn't just about get all you can while you can down here. There is more to life than just what we acquire for ourselves down here. That's what he's grabbing at. There is a life before the face of God that has implications right now. Right now, you live before the face of God and it has implications for all eternity when you'll actually see his face in uninterrupted presence for trillions of years. And so Jesus, he says this to these guys, but then here's the turn. He actually practices what he preaches. Jesus actually practices what he preaches. So he says, give to God what is rightly God's. And Jesus gives God his life, even to the point of laying it down to be a priestly offering for the sins of his people. Hey, track with this for a second. The true son of God who didn't have a coin to his name 
but was the beloved of the Father from before the foundation of the world, makes a true priestly offering for his people, not by demanding a tax from them or from us, but by actually paying the penalty of our debt of sin. And so he does this, and the reason Jesus practices what he preaches is because he actually believes what he preaches. That his father is the God of the living and won't abandon him to the grave. Remember John chapter 10? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. And I've received this charge from my father, the God of the living. And so the offense of Jesus, these people were intensely offended by Jesus. But the offense of Jesus for them and for us is the same. They initially think that they're offended by Jesus because he's tearing down their power structures. That's part of it. That's uncomfortable. But the real offense of Jesus is this, that the kingdom of God has collided with the kingdoms of this world and it is being dawned, it is coming into this world, the kingdom of God is coming through a homeless Jewish man from the backwoods town of Nazareth and was stapled to a Roman cross because of our high treason against his majesty. And he was raised from the dead to prove that every single word of this book is true. Even if it doesn't seem so right now. Even if from time to time you wonder where God is, the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb says, he is who he will always be, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word is true. And there's only one way. There's only one way to the love of the Father for every person on this planet. Regardless of your skin color, regardless of your creed, regardless of your background, there is no discrimination, there is no profiling. It is the love of God offered to every person on this planet, but there's only one way to that love, and it's through the crucified and resurrected man of Galilee. That's the offense of Jesus. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him? And so the charge for us from these two accounts, the burden that I want to leave you with, right, from these two accounts is this. He says, render to God what is rightly and only God's. That is your life. So the question I have for you is this. What part of your life is closed off or closed-fisted to God? All of us have these places, you know. As sometimes they're open and sometimes they're closed. Some places have never been open to him. But the question is, where in your life are you closed off or closed-fisted to God? And the second question comes from it. Yield to him because he's the God of the living. He's the living God. So the question is, what part of your life are you having a hard time surrendering because you're not sure if he's worth it? That's real. Where are you not sure he's worth it? Where are you not sure if he's the God of the living? Hey, here's what I can throw out as a guarantee to every one of us in this room. On the great day when you stand before the face of the living God, there's not a single sacrifice you made for Jesus that you'll want back. Not a single one. 
And I get it, man. Like there's that internal soul. Like my soul screams sometimes because I feel pulled between my flesh and the authority of God's word. And it screams. But I know this is true, that when I stand before his face, right now I wonder, are you really worth it? But when I see his face and I see those scars that that took the nails from me, there's not going to be a single sacrifice I made for him that I'll want back. He's completely worth it. Render to God what is rightly and only God's. And do this because he is the God of the living. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we really are conflicted. And we really do debate whether or not you're worth it. And God, I ask that you be patient with us. Be patient with us in our conflict and give us mercy to see that you really are worth it. And for the places in our life that are closed off to you because we're not sure what you'll say to us, would you help us to open up again? Would you help us to open up for the first time? And see that we don't have to Be afraid of you because you always come with peace, with clarity, with guidance. You always calm the storm. And so, Father, help us to give you what is rightly yours, our very life. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.